1 John, that's towards the back of your Bible. Begin today with chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This will be the third in our series of exposition on the book of 1 John, begun by Steve two weeks ago. And uh, Nick completed chapter 1 last week, so today we'll begin with chapter 2. Children, the key words are child or children, I guess that's appropriate. Sin and advocate. A-D-V-O-C-A-T-E. John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So let's begin unpacking these powerful verses to see what kind of treasures God has for us here. John begins this passage with a term of endearment to those to whom he is writing. He says, my little children. This term, little children, is actually uh, only one Greek word that literally means little children. Uh, It's the Greek word technion. John uses this word six more times in the gospel. He uses the word children, or the English word translated children, many more times. But when you see the the words little children each time in John, and there are seven times, it's always this word, technion. The other ones mean immature or childlike. So... John is obviously appealing to them with kind of a a sense of fatherly responsibility, if you will. Uh, Who's he writing to? He's writing to, it's believed, the church at Ephesus and the surrounding churches in that area of Asia Minor, um, which would be modern-day Turkey. Um, He is, after he left Jerusalem, he ministered in Ephesus for many years, it is believed. And as such, he would be familiar with the churches there. He is possibly the last surviving apostle when he writes this letter. And he has maybe a, a real strong sense of that fatherly responsibility that we see Paul gives to the apostles in Ephesians 2.20 when he says that the whole foundation of the church is built on the teachings of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So we rely on the teachings of the apostles to this day, and that's what we're doing right now. We're relying on him. So in a very real sense, John is a father figure to us as well, but only if we're in that family, only if we are in Christ. John said in his gospel in the first chapter, one John 1.12, he said that to all who believe in his name, to them, and only to them, did he give the right to become children of God. If we were to turn over to chapter 3 in 1 John, in the very first verse, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, us being the believers that he was writing to, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are, by extension, children of God as believers. 
It also could be that John is reflecting on the same way that Jesus perhaps sometimes dressed his own disciples. We see in John chapter 13, which uh, Brother Russ read a week ago Thursday in Monday Thursday service, Jesus addressed his disciples in this very same way, this very same Greek word, my little children. And he only addressed those that were remaining after Judas had departed to betray him. He addressed them that way. And Paul also addressed the church in Galatia in this same way in Galatians 4.19. So I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we in that family? Are you a child of God? Do you and I submit to the teachings of the apostles and prophets? In other words, do we act like we belong to the family of God? My prayers is that if you're not sure that you will be before today is over. I entitled my sermon, What Is Versus What Ought to Be. Because we see in the latter part of chapter 1, which Nick preached on last week, that John is writing to believers and telling them what the truth is, what is true about themselves, and by extension, what is true about us. And now he begins in chapter 2 by telling them what ought to be true about themselves. So let's look back, because he says, I'm writing these things. So let's look back. Let's just go back in chapter 1. Uh, to verse 8, where John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I like how he says the pronoun we. I'm encouraged by that. I don't know about you. But the apostle himself says that about himself now as a believer. I'm encouraged about that. You may be discouraged as well at times. He goes on in verse 9 to tell us what to do about that, what we ought to do about that. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In verse 10, he says again, and there's a lot of repetition in 1 John, and we'll see that as we work our way through here. But he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, Him being Christ. And his word is not in us. We see this connection in verse 8. He says the truth is not in us if we say we have no sin. And now he said his word is not in us. So we see this powerful connection between his word and the truth. And the truth is, truth is reality. And the truth is that we all have sin. Even those who are believers. Like John himself includes himself in this. So he tells us clearly that we all have sinned, we all do sin, and we all will sin. If you are one of those people that needs the Bible to speak to you from more than one place, we could go to many other places. I just chose three. I chose a universal affirmative, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23. Ten would be a universal negative. There is none righteous, no, not one. And then Ecclesiastes 7.20 combines those two, where it says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So we have both the affirmative and the negative all in one. 
But we see in these verses in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, what ought to be true is that we ought not sin. But when we do, we have an advocate with the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, John uses the word sin. We just read verse 8, verse 10, we see sin. 2.1, we see sin twice. 2.2, we see sins two more times. So we see it just in those four verses that John uses the word sin, sins, or sinned six times. He uses the word sin, sin, sinned, or sinning 28 times in 1 John alone. And so we see the truth is that we are, even as Christians, sinners, but we need to really understand what does he mean when he's using this word? Do we really understand it? It's very important because he uses a lot. We've, we've already used it a lot this morning. We use it a lot in the church. We see it used in society. The Bible uses those words over 750 times. So I think it's important that we understand fully what, just what he means by that. Now if we look in 2.1 again, it says, My little children, I am writing to you these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word he uses there that's translated sin both times is the Greek word hamartano. And it means literally to miss the mark. If you were in an archery shooting contest, it would mean that you did not hit the bullseye. And it also would mean that you missed the prize. In verse 2, he uses a slightly different word. It's the same root. It's hamartia that he uses there. And that word means offenses or transgressions or trespasses. So I like to take those meanings sometimes, I don't know about you, and put them back into the text to just kind of see what it would read then. So if we were to read that text and substitute the actual definition instead of the word, it would say, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not miss the mark defined by God because he's the one that sets that bullseye, the mark. If anyone does miss the mark defined by God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our offenses against God. And not for ours only, but also for the offenses against God for the whole world or of the whole world. The whole world has offended God. So we see that universal truth again. So this gives us a basic idea of sin about it's missing the mark. It's less than perfect performance. It is not doing what is pleasing to God or doing what is displeasing to God. And to God, is very important that we understand that. Uh, if you turn back with me back to, keep your place here because we're going to come back to 1 John. Uh, if you wanted to turn back, I will quote it for you. Is Psalm 51, 4. If you're turning back there, this is a psalm, a penitential psalm written by King David after he was found out, after he tried to hide but was found out and his sin with Bathsheba was exposed. 
his sin also against Uriah. But notice what David says, writing to God, speaking to God. He says in Psalm 51.4, Against you, speaking to God again, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So, you know, when we think about that, we'll think, well, he didn't just sin against God. I mean, he, didn't he wrong and hurt Uriah? I mean, after all, he conspired to have him killed. I would say Uriah was hurt. Certainly Uriah's family was hurt. Bathsheba's family was hurt. David's family was hurt. The country was hurt. But by definition, sin is against God. If we wrong others, we're sinning against God. That is against His. So sin is choosing our own way. It is setting our own standard or our own bullseye versus God's way or God's standard, God's bullseye. Now, the Bible describes sin in many other ways, and I mentioned 750. We'll try to cut that maybe in half. Uh, no, we'll, we'll take a few less than that, but I want to go over at least a few. And right here in 51.4, we see that <clears throat> besides saying that against you and you only I have sinned, I have done what is evil in your sight. Sin is evil in God's sight. There's anything that is displeasing to God. <clears throat> if you turn back towards, you know, we'll start working our way back towards um, 1 John, we stop off in Proverbs in verse 16, verse 2, or chapter 16, verse 2. It says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit, <clears throat> or the motive. Clean in his own eyes, or pure in his own eyes, maybe your version, but the Lord weighs the spirit, or motive. What does this mean? It means that we can sin even doing what God prescribes. I can look and see that I have hit that bullseye. I'm feeling good about myself. But I can do it with a wrong motive or spirit, and God knows that. He knows my spirit, it says. So it means that I can keep the letter of the law and yet break the spirit of the law at the same time. And which is most important to God? It's the spirit of the law that is the most important. He knows my heart. He knows my spirit. If we turn over a few more chapters to Proverbs 30 and verse 12, it's this idea again in sin. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. If you think you're clean, do you jump back in the shower again? I mean, I, you know, if I think I'm clean, I don't think I need another shower so I don't get in this shower. If I'm clean in my own eyes, <clears throat> and I know that's a rhetorical question, but John told us in one eight and one ten, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then how can we be cleansed? John, 1 John one nine. if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, if we think we are clean in our own eyes, we are mistaken. We need cleansing. 
And Christ is the only one who can cleanse us. So what does it lead to if we are never washed? We can get an idea still in here in Proverbs, in Proverbs 14.12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. All of this just means that God is the one who defines what sin is, not man. Man is not the arbiter of what is and is not sin. And we tend to think in this country, I see, that many people think that some action, if some action is legal, then it's not sin. Abortion and divorce are examples. But just because it's legal to get an abortion or a no-fault divorce does not mean that it's not sin in the eyes of God. It was legal for many years, for instance, for men to buy and sell other men in slavery. But was that not sin against God? It was legal up until in my lifetime for some men to have to send their children to a different school or to use a different bathroom or a different water fountain, usually an inferior one. <clears throat> But was that not sin in the eyes of God? Uh, was it non-Christians that got those laws changed? Or was it Christians whose consciences were transformed by the Spirit of God working through His Word that got that changed? That's what I think is the answer. Uh, may we have that kind of influence today. Uh, we see no-fault divorce exists in virtually every state. Now we see homosexual marriage in some. But God hates divorce. And to get in a divorce for any reason that you choose is setting your own bullseye. And these verses tell us that that is sin. Only what is right in God's eyes is good and right and holy. Now don't turn there. I'll, I'll just hit a few more. Deuteronomy 9, 7 uh, due to time, I'll just hit a few more. It says that sin is rebellion against God. Where does this rebellion come from? I guess you can work your way back in Matthew because we're still working our way back towards First um, John. Where does this rebellion, this evil in the sight of God, which is sin, where does it come from? Jesus says in Matthew 15, for out of the heart, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, Sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. We see here examples of sin, and it says they all come from out of the heart. Even our thoughts, evil thoughts, can be sin without even any action. Jesus, that makes sense when we look back at the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27 to 29, You've heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. Anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said that sin comes from the heart. And he's saying there, we can be guilty of sin without even taking any action. even before we take action, even if we never take the action outwardly, we're still guilty of sin. In our heart, we've had thoughts 
displeasing to God. And if you were to read on, you would see how serious that is to him. Romans 14.23, don't turn there, we'll just go through these rather quickly due to time. Uh, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Living without faith or living faithlessly is sin. James 4.17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What he's saying is that sin is not just committing acts that are displeasing to God. It's not committing acts that God commanded you to do. And knowing God's commands are not enough. Knowing them and doing them is the bullseye. Hebrews 3.13 says, Sin is deceitful. Now let's turn back to 1 John. And we'll work from there. John addresses it in chapter 3, verse 4. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is a disregard for or an ignorance of God's law. I remember uh, the last ticket that I got. Fortunately, it was a number of years ago. Uh, I was in a new place. Got pulled over. Didn't know why. I was doing basically the speed limit. That's that deceitfulness, (laughs) for one. Um, But unbeknownst to me, the speed limit had actually changed, and I just didn't notice the sign not familiar with the area, and uh, I was uh, not actually in the right speed range. (laughs) And so I was ignorant of the law. Is that an excuse in man's world? Not really. And if that's true of man, how much more true would that be of God? So sin is lawlessness even if we don't know about it. All the more reason to know God's Word. And 1 John 5, 17, if we were to turn back in, in chapter 5 and look at verse 17, John says, all wrongdoing or unrighteousness is sin. <clears throat> sin is, one, is wrongdoing or unrighteousness against God, the one who created and sustains us. So what we've seen so far in these verses is that sin is against God because it is ultimately a violation of His standard. Man does not determine what sin is. Only God does. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin comes from the heart, does not even require any external action. It can merely be thoughts that are displeasing to God. Sin begins in the heart. Have you ever had any hateful thoughts? I have to confess, I can barely drive to or from work each day of the week without having... And we laugh about that, but it is so prevalent. Sin is so prevalent in our lives. Without me having a hateful thought with about one of my fellow drivers. And that reminds me of our words. And I didn't read any verses on words, but you know, one of the commandments is not to take the Lord's name in vain. Do you have you ever done that? Ever? Do you still sometimes? Uh, Paul said in Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you always do that? Do I? No. I have to confess that. Uh, 
I don't know anyone that always speaks wholesome words good for edification. I don't know anyone. So doing something prohibited is a sin of commission. Not doing something commanded is a sin of omission. There's so many sins of omission that we, we neglect. Do not forsake the gathering together as is the habit of some, which some are partaking of right this moment. Some that are, and there may be reasons for that, but we're commanded to seek first the kingdom of God. Do you do that all the time? Do I? Your money? Time? I'm commanded to pray for others. I often don't. I'm commanded to love others. I often don't. I'm commanded to bear one another's burdens. I often don't due to laziness or just not caring enough. I miss the bullseye. Are you like me? Faithlessness is sin, not trusting in God's ways. Sin is deceitful. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is unrighteousness in the eyes of God. So when you look at all these things and you think of really about what sin is, you have to realize with me that we all have sinned many times. And we all still do sin even though we're believers in Christ. And we all will sin. As Nick prayed this morning, we have to constantly, what ought to be true is constantly go to Christ because we do need Him. He has saved us from the penalty and power of sin, but we're still in the presence of sin this side of heaven. And while still in the presence of sin, we will still sin. The bar is set high, as you can see. And in our flesh, we will still sin. But Paul, or John is saying in these verses that we ought not to sin. It ought not be our practice. And we're going to spend more time on that practice later on in, the, in this book, in this letter that John wrote. <clears throat> How many sins does it take to prove that you are a sinner? James addresses it in James 2.10. If we keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, we've become guilty of all. <clears throat> but when you meet unbelievers, people outside the church, and sometimes even within the church, we kind of tend to think that God grades on a curve. You know, we have the extreme ends and majority of people are in the middle. And as long as we can stay off of that extreme end, the worst of society, we think we're okay. Now, whose standard of comparison is that? Where does that come from? That comes from the world, from us. That's not God's standard as we've seen. That's not the bullseye He set for us. He says plainly what our standard is is in Matthew 5:48, but you ought to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We had a men's breakfast uh, yesterday and Brother Earl was cracking eggs into that bowl over there and he was talking about how some people can do too. Mike can probably do that. And he's, he's, he's whipping these eggs into this bowl. And, and there was a lot of eggs involved. There was a lot of men coming. I was thinking, oh, what if one of those eggs is bad and nasty? It's rotten. What's that going to do to all the other eggs that are all broken in that bowl? You know, can you reach in there in that bowl and take out that broken, rotten egg and remove it from all the others? Is that possible? Or that, that curve logic is like 
thinking, well, there's more good eggs in the bowl than there are bad. You know, that one stinky greenish, blackish egg that's in there. I mean, there's a lot more good eggs in there than that one. So it's, it should be acceptable to go ahead and stir that up and serve it to everybody. That's that logic. And that's what it is when we serve our lives up to God with any sin in it. The whole mixture is ruined with that one egg, isn't it, Micah? You can't serve that. And that's what it's like. Are you trying to serve your life up, life up to God like that? We've seen that man's way leads to death, Proverbs 14, 12. And Romans 6, 23, of course, says the wages of sin is death. <clears throat> Therefore, we can conclude with God's Word that it is impossible for man to save himself because our way leads to death. It's impossible for us to clean out our own bowl and with the rotten eggs in it. <clears throat> Jesus said this plainly to his disciples in Matthew 19, Mark 10. But in Matthew 19, 25 and 26, they asked him, exasperated, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So we see with sin, we have a problem. It is true of us. That's what is. But God solved this problem in the person of Jesus Christ. The infinite God-man, totally man in the flesh, but totally God in the flesh. He alone can solve our problem. As John said in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this Lamb is our advocate as we see in 2.1. <clears throat> We're back at 1 John 2.1. My little children, I'm writing you these things or these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we, again, John includes himself in this, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now here John says that Jesus is our advocate. The Greek word parakletos is translated advocate here in the ESV. But it is also the same word that John used back in his gospel that is translated helper or comforter. And in every one of those places in John 14, 15, and 16, it refers to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also our advocate. But He is our advocate here on earth. Jesus is our advocate in heaven to the Father. <clears throat> he is our intercessor in heaven. So the word advocate as it's used here is true. Jesus is our legal advocate in heaven. <clears throat> I think if you try to imagine a courtroom scene, Satan is called the great accuser and he's over on God's left and he's accusing me of sin. What's my problem? It's the one thing he's right about. It's true, I am. I'm guilty. But I have over here, on God's right, Jesus Christ, my advocate, interceding for me. I have sinned. If I'm pleading not guilty, I have no advocate. All I have left is an accuser. But I've, when I plead guilty, Jesus has paid the, my penalty he does not do this for everyone. He only does it for those who plead guilty <clears throat> and cry out for His grace and mercy. Now, I did not do this on my own. He, by His grace and mercy, opened my eyes to see my need for His mercy. 
He adopted me into His family as we heard song this morning. And then paid the penalty for His child. And He made me righteous in God's sight. I am guilty. I'm not without sin. But He has not only satisfied the legal requirements with God, more than that, He intercedes for me to God. And I think that's much like what He did with Peter. You know, Peter denied Christ three times. Peter was a believer. He denied Christ three times. And Jesus told him back in John that he, Satan would like to sift him like wheat. And he would if Jesus didn't intercede for him. And I think he's telling Peter and likewise all of us as fellow believers that we will all have trials. We will all fail him. We will all have sin just like him. But he's assured us of the ultimate victory in him alone. And he intercedes for us in prayers. And without Him, all we have left is Satan accusing us. So that brings us to verse 2. We've unpacked verse 1 now. Let's try and unpack verse 2 quickly. It says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I hear you guys using that word all the time, propitiation, in your normal, everyday, southeast Georgia conversation, right? That's not a word we use. What does it mean? Uh, It literally means, it's the Greek word, halasmos, that can be translated uh, propitiation, best, probably the best word for it. It means appeasement or satisfaction. And that's what Jesus did. He satisfied the wrath of God required by sin. God told Adam the penalty. And he's not just going to look away and say, oh, yeah, okay, you sin, okay, uh, well, I'll overlook. That penalty has to be paid either by the person or by Christ. I couldn't pay the penalty for you. You can't pay the the penalty for me because you and I are both guilty. Only someone who was innocent and didn't deserve the penalty could pay the penalty for us. And that's what Jesus did. God poured out His wrath on sin. Jesus took that wrath that that we deserved... Read Romans 5, 9. He took that wrath that we deserved. He took it on Himself. We are guilty. We are sinners and not righteous. But in Christ, God sees us as righteous as Christ. I think Paul um, describes it best. That only the person themselves or the or a totally innocent person could satisfy the requirement he described it best in second corinthians 5:21, when he said for our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of christ we're not ourselves righteous his righteousness is imputed to our account <clears throat> now i will just say quickly that a couple of bible verses translate the word of propitiation differently. One of them translated as as atonement. Another translates it as expiation. And really, both of those terms are actually true. Uh, Expiation means that God takes away our sins and gives us His righteousness. Well, that's true. He did do that. He atones for them. Uh, So, Jesus both propitiation propitiates our sin and expiates our sin. That's not easy to say. So let me reread 
1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So finally, Jesus, this says that Jesus' payment was and is sufficient for everyone in the whole world. Now, some take this to believe and they take this to mean that Jesus actually died for the sins of every person who ever lived. Yes, Jesus' death was sufficient. The penalty was capable, valuable enough to pay the sins of everyone, but it was not efficient or effective for everyone who ever lived. And this is clear when we look at the rest of Scripture. John is not saying that Jesus died for everyone who ever lived. Instead, he is referring here to the world, meaning mankind in general. It was valuable enough to cover the sins of everyone, regardless of the severity of their sin. And that's the good news. But we know by reading the rest of Scripture that it was only effective for those who believe. And we also know that those who believe were chosen before the foundation of the world. God knew who He was paying the penalty for because He chose them to believe before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. So we actually really need to look no further than 1 John to see this also. 1 John 2.4, if we were to just look a couple of verses later, John says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So we see that some people don't believe. If Jesus intended them to believe, they would believe. Otherwise, he's not God. There's something that he, or someone, he doesn't have power over. His intent was fully fulfilled by saving those who he chose before the foundation of the world. In John, 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Not everyone in the world is called children of God. And he goes on to say, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So there are many in the world that do not know Him. So I hope you see the distinction between we, us, and the rest of the world. Only those who know Him are called the children of God. And John says in 17.3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God is eternal life. And he says there in that chapter also that he, Jesus intercedes, says, I intercede not for the whole world, but only for those who you've given me. So it's clear that he means mankind in general. So, let me wrap this up. How do we apply all this in our lives? Are you a Christian? A Christian is someone who agrees with God about their sin. They plead guilty. And they seek forgiveness and cleansing only from Christ. A Christian believes that Jesus is the only one who can cleanse them from their sin. They are not someone who first tries to clean themselves up. I have met so many people who have said that. They're either going to restart church or they're going to start going to church once they clean this or that up in their lives. It's not going to happen. They need the 
They need transforming by hearing the Word preached and taught. And that's the only way they will come to see what the truth is. Preached, taught, or read. And the truth is what is. That they are sinners. And they cannot be clean themselves. And that they ought to come to Christ for their cleansing and Him alone. Now, from that, I don't want you to get the idea that the church has the sole responsibility for your growth. Paul addressed that in Philippians to when he said, work out your own salvation. You and I are responsible for our own growth. But we are not to forsake the gathering together as is the habit of some as we are now or the teaching offered in Sunday school or small groups. Just don't forsake that by any means, but also don't lean on that as your sole means of growth. What we all need is Christ alone, and we ought to strive to please Him daily. But we have to confess that we will still fall short of the mark. And we will never be in a position where we still don't need His grace, ever. A Christian is someone who believes Jesus has saved them, He is saving them, and He will save them because they still need Him. Jesus' last words on the cross, as John recorded them, is John 19.30, where Jesus said, It is finished. That is one Greek word. It's the Greek word tetelestai, which also means it is paid in full. And that is what Jesus did. There's nothing that you or I can add to it. He paid it all, and all to Him we owe. And that's how we ought to live, so let's stand right now and sing that song in response. <laughs>